economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And joining us is Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. And finally, my fellow producer and graduate assistant, Luke Graham. All right. Well, we're excited to have a guest on today. It's Michael Farron from the Mercatus Center. Michael Farron is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, which happens to be Peter Jacobson's stomping grounds for his doctorate. His research focuses on the efforts, uh, I'm sorry, on the effects of government favoritism towards particular businesses, industries, and occupations, specializing in labor, economic development, and transportation issues. Michael has testified before Congress and numerous state legislatures in his research and commentary have been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the National Public Radio, among others. Michael received his PhD in applied economics from The Ohio State University and participated in the Frederick Bastiat Fellowship at the Mercatus Center. He is licensed as a professional engineer and received his master's in transportation engineering and his bachelor's in civil engineering from The Ohio State University. So you liked how I emphasized the, the the part. At least that's what I hear all the football players doing. So did, did I do okay with that, Michael? Yeah, you did just fine. Uh, I personally, <laughs> even though I came from the Ohio State University, I do find it a little bit tiresome. They started shifting to the when I was an undergraduate. So uh, I still just think of it as Ohio State. Gotcha. All right. Well, tell us what's been going on in Kansas. I'm not sure if they know what went on in general. Some of your research centers around public-private partnerships, which has always kind of bothered me as an economist with that kind of gray, fuzzy area. I was a real estate developer back in Iowa and uh, did participated in various public-private partnerships of historic tax credit renovation and, and some other things within the city. And as an economist, I always really didn't like that idea for the most part. I can't say that I always calculated all the benefits and costs to see who was coming out top because I was a real estate developer and it was, it was I was just following the rules, right? And so that extra funding was there and we could kind of tailor our proposals accordingly to try to garner as much rent seeking as possible. So tell us about what went on here in Kansas. Uh, that's, a, that's a great introduction. And, and I like the way that you do it, describe in terms of your past and, and, and the rules of the game, and you were just following what was going on. Economists like to take an, an institutional approach to things like this, which for the layperson just means, what are the rules of the game? And if you tell me what the rules of the game are, I can give you a pretty good idea of what the incentives are facing the people playing that game, and therefore what their actions are likely to be. So what we have is a 50-state a game going on here, where states and cities spend approximately $100 billion every single year, essentially in a race to bottom, to try trying to poach jobs 
away from other states. There's been a recent surge in it. You've probably seen a lot of this in the news lately. And the reason why we're talking about it here and in Kansas is that Kansas City is kind of ground zero. It is the poster child for the problems associated with economic development subsidies. And, and again, to emphasize, these are what we see is just rational players, rational businesses, rational politicians playing according to the, the rules of the game that, that they have available to them, which is that uh, government officials get benefits from voters from offering subsidies to businesses because they're able to claim credit for the jobs that the businesses create. The businesses say, sure, we'll sign an agreement to go ahead and expand our operations or, or come uh, move our headquarters to a state that in most cases, the research finds they were already going to do. Seven out of eight subsidies on average don't actually sway a company's decision of where to relocate or expand, meaning that almost 90% of subsidy spending is wasted. And that's especially true when you consider a metropolitan area like Kansas City and State Line Road that runs right through the middle of the city, separating Kansas from Missouri. I got a chance to speak in Kansas about five or six years ago at an event, and there was a local businessman there that he stood up and he said, like, yeah, I, I agree that this is a terrible practice. He says, but, you know, it's hard for me not to participate in it, even though I agree it's a terrible practice. I can, I move my, my office from one side of State Road to State Line Road to the other side of State Line Road, I could literally see my old office standing at the front door of my new office, <laughs> but I got subsidies to do it. And so Kansas is uh, Kansas City is the, the most wasteful experience that we've seen of this in the US. Thankfully, there's currently a truce in place between Kansas and Missouri, but it is a short-lived truce. And it's, it's an example of, of how we might be able to move forward for this at the national level and, and a way to make a more permanent arrangement between Kansas and Missouri more specifically. Yeah, with Royals and the Chiefs talks going on right now, yeah. I, I'm a, a, little fr- a, a little bit afraid about the long-lasting nature. Of and I think that was related to the truce. Like, okay, well, once this truce is off, then we can try to incentivize the Chiefs to come over to Kansas or whatever. So I remember yeah, that being talked about. There's a lot of that going on. Tennessee just approved $1.2 billion worth of subsidies for the Titans. New York just approved 850 million subsidies for the Buffalo Bills. Virginia legislature is considering hundreds of million for, for the Washington Commanders. The Chicago Bears are threatening to move not out of Chicago, just to a suburb and trying to extort money out of the city for that. I've heard similar things for the Kansas City region, like you described. And and right now, the truce would prevent that. But the truce is very tenuous. I can give you a bit of a history of the truce if you're interested. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's relevant for today. Yeah. Okay. So... Uh, We have to go back in the time machine to so many years ago, to 2011. (laughs) Feels much longer than just 11 years. Which happens to be when I moved to Kansas, by the way. Okay. Uh, To take the job here at Ottawa University. So There you go. 
So 2011, 17 area business leaders, the, 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 the border war between Kansas, Missouri was already so bad by 2011 of the states and, and uh, municipalities of the Kansas City metropolitan area poaching companies from each other and poaching companies over state line road, which all you're doing is paying a company to ch change its address. It's not actually creating any sort of economic benefit to the region. Yeah, um, the, the, we got to make sure the listeners understand that, that the workers, the employees, they can travel across that road yeah. to get to the other place. So even their employee employee base doesn't change where they live or anything. It, it is. You mentioned the term rent seeking earlier, and that's that's a very wonky economics term <laughs> that I, I try to describe as it is attempts to create super profits using government authority in general. Is that, that's a good enough definition for for what we were talking about today? So it's rather than competing using market based mechanisms in terms of trying to please your customers and attract more customers, it's competing using government power to extract more resources from taxpayers in this case. So, so this was already so much of a problem by 2011 that 17 local business leaders sent an open letter to the governors of each state and said, we really need to stop this. There's absolutely <laughs> no point to this practice. And Nothing happened. Like it, it, it was lauded as like this. This is a good thing. We should, we should cooperate in some way here. But even though the acad academic research suggests that subsidies don't work at swaying where a company decides to locate, and even when it does decide to persuade a company to locate in a new place, what you've done is you've persuaded the company to make a suboptimal decision. They would have located in place A. Now they're locating in place B. There's going to be inefficiencies from doing so, even if those inefficiencies are simply the cost of moving across the street for no good real reason other than to claim a subsidy. Like Those are economic losses that reduce long-term economic growth. So even when subsidies work to sway a company where to locate, it slows national economic growth. And we're doing that to the tune of, again, about $100 billion every single year. So the problem with Kansas City, the 17 business leaders provided this, this open letter and nothing really happened. Uh, the Missouri legislature a few years later, I think in 2014, did offer an olive branch to Kansas and say, we will enact a ceasefire truce with you if you're interested in doing that. Well, Kansas wasn't interested. So the practice continued on for another five years. The, the legislation had a, a five-year end date on it. And they, the Missouri legislature, to their credit, re-upped it once, once that five-year deadline had passed. And this time, under a different governor in Kansas, there was more consideration. And Governor Kelly signed an executive order saying, okay, state economic development agencies don't offer any subsidies to companies in the Kansas City region on the Missouri side of the border to get them to cross the border to Kansas. And this was the same deal that the Missouri legislature had offered to Kansas. So this isn't an entire state truce. This is just a Kansas City area truce mm. to avoid poaching over the immediate state border. But 
the next Kansas governor, and there's a gubernatorial election in Kansas mm-hmm. this year, could decide to invalidate that state order, uh, that executive order, and go a different direction. And even if if the uh, next governor, whoever it is, maintains that executive order, the legislation itself expires, I think it's in 2024, August of 2024. So we're looking at a situation where this is truly a temporary truce. And if the states want to avoid reigniting the border war in the future, they're going to have to sit down and create a more permanent agreement. Wow. All right. Well, one of the reasons I caught you at this last conference was not off the press at the time, and it's still only been three or four weeks or something, was the, what was it, $1.6 billion to, to get a big company to come to Kansas. Uh, talk about the details of that particular one and, and into the you know, cost-benefit analysis as you've maybe calculated or seen it. Uh, that's, I think, would be a good one to dive into. Definitely. So I actually testified on that legislation before the Kansas legislature. I want to say it was February of this year, just before it ended up getting passed. It is. So you failed, is what you're saying. You failed to persuade them, but but you know I, that's expected the result. But I'm just saying. I, I have yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so part of the problem we have here is what economists call. I'm throwing all sorts of uh, econ buzzwords at you today. Is uh, it's a prisoner's dilemma. The economics of these subsidy deals are such that it would be in a state's best interest to unilaterally get rid of them. Because every dollar you spend on a subsidy is a dollar that you can't spend on some other government service program or on a tax cut broadly for all businesses. And so what that means is that because every dollar has to get taxed out of the economy to support that subsidy, that means that every subsidy has a negative economic impact that virtually no one ever considers. They only consider the positive economic impact of swaying a company to relocate. And again, the swaying part, the academic research finds, doesn't work. So in this case, Kansas, the the company in question is almost certainly Panasonic. And it's part of the, uh, it's going to be an electric vehicle battery manufacturing plant. And because Panasonic is going to be manufacturing EV batteries for the Tesla plant, among other manufacturers. And in this case, Kansas is going up against Oklahoma. Kansas has approved subsidies. The, the valuation ranges from uh, $1.3 billion to $1.6 billion, like you mentioned. But Kansas has already passed that. Just last week, Governor Stitz in Oklahoma approved $700 million worth of subsidies for that state to try to attract this plant. And to dig into Kansas's subsidies a little bit, the one of the things they did that was, they, they claimed that this was just business as usual, very standard. One of the things that was in that legislation was a reimbursement of labor costs for the company. Oh, wow. um, and many times what you've seen with these the, they always call these mega deals, transformational deals, transformational <laughs> projects. You've seen state legislatures, Foxconn was one of the ones that, that really galvanized this. Uh, legislation was passed in Michigan and North Carolina and obviously Wisconsin. And what it did is it allowed the company to essentially claim the taxes, the income, uh, income taxes paid by its workers and receive that back as a subsidy. And, and so 
you can if you if you squint hard enough and turn your head quickly enough you can make an argument that says okay the the company if the company really isn't coming to town but for those subsidies then we wouldn't have that tax revenue anyway so if we just give it back to the company then it's no real net loss for ourselves again the academic research says 7 out of every 8 subsidies don't change what someone's going to where states are, where companies are going to locate. So that, that idea is wrong, but that's how people have justified it. In this case, Kansas legislature has approved reimbursement of a portion of overall labor expenses. So that means that it's not just funded by the income taxes of those workers. It is actually much larger than that. And I hope that it is not a sign of things to come in the in the coming economic subsidy deals of the future. Yeah, it's funny when you mention that, and we'll we'll get to a break here and come back to discuss explore some more issues. But I made that same argument you just did to the city council of Ames, Iowa, when I was trying to get a ten year tax abatement on about a ten million dollar building. So I, I I know the argument well, and like you said, in that, in that case, we actually I'm not trying to morally justify myself here, but. <laughs> You know, it did change the type of building that was put up. So there was there was brick, and there's other aspects of that particular deal, which I'm sure, uh, if you get down into the weeds on these deals, maybe there's some of that too. After we get back from break, I, I know we got a few more details to discuss, but I want to get into rational ignorance to throw another. I, it seems like we're throwing too many buzzwords, but as long as we always explain them, I don't really mind. That's something we've brought up before that the voters aren't paying attention to this because to understand it, you got to get into these economic details. And they have better things to do with their lives. And so the governors are able to continue to pass on these potentially absurd uh, numbers and deals. And so I was, I'll was i be curious to hear from you in the second half uh, if the Mercatus Center has a kind of an educational outreach to try to you know champion voters. We're not going to vote for that governor unless they you know don't buy into these deals or if they support working deals with other governors. I'd love to see that being a campaign issue. And so we'll Come back to that and other things here after our break. We'll be back in just a bit. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University has created a student competition on classical liberal ideas. How can we get high school students, high school teachers, and college students engaged in ideas of free enterprise and freedom? Well, philosophy, politics, and economics is a new major here at Ottawa University, and we have created a PPE league where students compete on exactly that. If you or somebody else have students interested in those ideas and joining our competition, contact Russ McCullough today. Okay, we're back and trying to figure out how we can get governments not doing dumb things, which is a pretty tall order, really, in, in the political market space. But perhaps we'll come up with some solutions by, by the end of this. And, and one of the reasons I mentioned rational, ignorant voters People, the, the cost-benefit decision doesn't make sense for people to be in tune with, like, let's say, what Kansas has on the table to Panasonic and what Oklahoma has on the table to Panasonic. It just doesn't make sense. And so when a, when a politician comes about and says the normal, we're going to bring jobs to Kansas, that's all they need to say. And then there's, there's not much of a public outcry, uh, even though the numbers may not make sense at all. And so that's a, a real conundrum. And I think Michael has some suggestions on on how governments might be able to make some some things later. But let's start off with Justin. You wanted to get to a clarification on something? Yeah, so I think some, some of our listeners might be a little bit confused too, but if 
it seems like if seven out of eight subsidies don't work, why are we so worried about them? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I don't think I did a good enough job explaining the, the prisoner's dilemma that, that I mentioned earlier. So the, the dilemma is caused by the fact that the, the economic research, the economics of these deals don't make any sense. But the political dynamics of these deals make complete sense. And this is research by multiple different scholars. Nate Jensen at University of Texas Austin, Ed Molesky at Duke, wrote a book called Incentives to Pander, showing that generally policymakers tend to benefit from offering subsidies at the ballot box, that voters think that, okay, they're doing something to help things even though the, the actual economics of it uh, says that they don't. And additional research by Caitlin Slatterly at Columbia and Owen Zedar at Princeton found that this is especially true with the case of gubernatorial elections. So, and, and I'm writing an article right now looking at all the different governors across the U.S. facing re-election that have been engaging in granting these, these mega subsidies. And unfortunately, Governor Kelly there in Kansas and Governor Stitz in Oklahoma are two of them. Right. And Peter, what were you thinking on jobs? And Yeah, so I, I'm curious, Michael, your, your response here. I can think of like two responses that are maybe like the best version of responses to, because I, I'm in agreement with you, by the way, on corporate subsidies, especially with relocation bids, but I've always gotten sort of two responses. The one that I think is easier to deal with is, but what about those cases where it does work and in fact, the company does come and it does create jobs? Aren't jobs good? Uh, you know, shouldn't we be trying to create jobs? So that's one response. The second response that I, I'm really curious of your opinion on is one of the things that you mentioned was that one of the problems with this way of thinking is that it makes companies choose like their second best option, basically, or a, a second best option, maybe not their second best after the subsidy, but uh, they had a first best place they were going to, but insofar as someone bids them away, they're choosing some suboptimal location from society's perspective. But a lot of times these corporate subsidies are really just taking the form of taxes, or rather tax breaks. And don't the tax breaks themselves, you know, solve a problem of we've already created a system where businesses are, you know, de dealing with second best already. Taxes create deadweight loss. And so by adding corporate subsidies, you know, doesn't the deadweight loss we fix by get getting rid of the taxes outweigh the loss that we get by convincing a business to move one place or another? I hope that second one made sense. Sure. I, I, I think it did. So first, the question, and it's a good question. What about when it does work? And, and so what about when you have a unicorn where you've offered a company enough money that it is now going to locate in a place that doesn't make sense for it from a business perspective? That's, that's the important like caveat that you have to, this doesn't make sense from a business perspective. I'm just chasing the money. And in that situation, there's a whole host of economic dysfunction that accompanies motivating that kind of decision. My colleague, Matt Mitchell and I and others have written several papers about this, but in particular, you're creating political dysfunction because you are essentially 
twisting the political landscape so that politicians are chasing jobs rather than chasing legitimate ways, uh, like chasing claiming credit for jobs rather than chasing legitimate ways to serve the public interest. You are warping the economic sphere by encouraging companies to chase subsidies rather than chasing pleasing their customers. And then you are warping the public's own understanding of the relationship between business and government. And arguably, this is a much greater and more worrisome long-term trend in that if people don't trust markets and, and free economics anymore, then what we're going to get is more involvement of the government in the economy. And so the spillover effects in terms of long-term policy can end up being a much more fettered and interfered with economy than we would otherwise have. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And so the, the second question was, but you know, taxes have deadweight loss. Yes, they do. Isn't it good that we reduce taxes? That reduces economic deadweight loss. And the answer is, well, in a perfect world, yes. But in economics, you always have to answer, ask the question, compared to what? And so in this case, we're looking at a situation where either you're going to hold government spending constant or you're going to reduce government spending. And the situation uh, by the amount of the subsidy in the situation where you hold government spending constant, then everyone else's taxes have to be higher to accommodate that sustained level of government spending along with it with the subsidy. They're essentially paying for the subsidy. And so you end up with greater deadweight loss simply from the fact that everybody else is paying those taxes. You could argue, well, we should cut the size of government and we should use subsidies to do that. Well, that's one way to do it. But a better way to do it would be to take that same value of the subsidy and the tax cut and distribute it evenly to every business because the, the deadweight loss increases according to the size of the tax. So the sure. best way to tax to minimize deadweight loss is to tax everyone just a little bit. I was wondering if you have some studies that took it on a per job basis. So I remember, I can't remember the details exactly, but this was on government subsidy, maybe of cotton or something. And so they came up with the, the subsidy, you know, new jobs were created, let's say, right. Mm -hmm. um, and the average earnings of the new jobs was 60,000 a year, but the subsidy was actually $200,000 per job per year. And to me, that brings it down to a level instead of this 1.6 billion or what, you know, numbers that really more or less mean nothing. If we can bring it down to the average Joe on a per job basis, I think it starts to maybe get the point across that this is not a good move. Are you aware of some studies like that? Sure. So that, that's a, a common thing that, that several of my colleagues working in this space like to use. The subsidies that were just approved for <laughs> Rivian in Georgia are about that level, that it's around two hundred to 250000 
per job and the jobs are going to make an average of about 50,000. Uh, the Rivian says, <laughs> you, you don't know because this is all in the future. Uh, and, and most of these deals, you're just relying on what the company tells you is going to happen. Uh, and obviously these kind of deals can go sideways and companies can change their plans as uh, Wisconsin's experience with Foxconn has uh, shown us very, very well. But yeah, about 200 to 250,000 if you're looking for best practices, the the average amount is much more like seventy five thousand. It's less than a hundred thousand per job. So in, in situations where uh, you're paying two hundred, two hundred fifty thousand a job, it's at that point it's really not worth it. Yeah. And our research with regard to Foxconn's subsidies from Wisconsin suggests that in general. Most of these subsidies can be understood once you factor in the costs of taxation for other businesses and the negative economic effects that that creates, that these subsidies may have as much of a negative impact. They may be as likely to have a negative impact as they are to have a positive economic impact. So one of the things that bother me about these truces and compacts is that there's a part of me that we talk about federalism on this podcast quite a bit, and it's like, we want states competing with each other that will get good outcomes. And, and I, think, I think the answer to that, so I'm a little hesitant. My point is when I have two governors colluding with each other, basically, on something. But I think given the rational ignorance and given the nature of the prisoner's dilemma that we've went through, that's really the path forward is to have something like that. But I have my reservations. Like I, I want to preserve some sort of competition, but yet maybe that's just not feasible in this political market space. So the, the question is, is what do we want to compete over or what do we want our state governments to compete over? And the answer is economic policy broadly, regulations, public services that they provide. And, and the answer should be unique to every state and unique to every municipality, although the, the best policies are probably going to rhyme with each other. They may not be exactly the same every place, but they'll, they'll rhyme with each other. In this case, what we're saying is we want to avoid ruinous competition, competition mm -hmm. that leads to less economic growth than more. And so one of the ideas to, to solve this, both for Missouri and Kansas with the Kansas City border, state border there, and also across the U.S., is an interstate compact, as you mentioned. Interstate compacts are part of the U.S. Constitution. They are essentially enshrined there as a continuation of the treaties that existed between the original colonies before there even was a federal government. Hmm. And there are already over 220 existing interstate compacts. The one that you that affects you probably mostly every day, but you never think about is the interstate compact on driver's licensure. That's what allows you to cross state borders and have your driver's license recognized in another state. And if while you're on vacation, you at, drive like a maniac, those crimes will then come back and, and you can't escape them simply by going across the state border. So an interstate compact offers a way for states in their status as the sovereign entities that created the federal government with the constitution to begin with to act in their sovereign status, to cooperatively decide policy with each other. And what we typically see is when the federal government tries to intrude on an area of interstate policy, 
the states can come together and say, no, we can solve this with an interstate compact. We don't need to cede even more of our sovereignty away to the federal government. We can act together to do this. And so it's, it's a way to, to cooperatively move in a better direction rather than arguably having Congress step in and solve this problem uh, using its congr- uh, com- commerce, commerce Clause authority. Wow, that's a great answer for a free market guy like me. Like that, that just made perfect sense. And I wasn't sure you were going to go there. But John, my John Mazena and I at the Center for Economic Accountability wrote an entire paper at the beginning of the pandemic saying, if we're going to give states relief funds, then the Congress should forestall, should end the interstate, uh, interstate subsidy war uh, using its commerce authority. But a mm-hmm. better way to do this is an interstate compact. Yeah. 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 And, uh, I like the way you said, I mean, really, we want states competing on their real resources <laughs> that they bring to the table. Like Kansas is away from the coast. If I'm building a battery plant, if I'm Panasonic, wide open spaces, good access to labor and maybe threat of war or something. Right. Mm-hmm. If, if, if there's a bomb that's going to be dropped, it's probably going to be on the coast and not right in the middle of Kansas. So there's lots of considerations depending on the uniqueness of whatever this business is doing. That might attract them to Kansas, but it might attract them to San Francisco or it might attract them somewhere else. And so if we can just get them competing on real resources, not basically fake resources of of just free money and tax subsidies, that would be really healthy. Yeah. And I, I also think Michael brought up a good point that policy competition is okay if it's like broad policies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's fine for different states to have different tax rates. What we want to avoid is different states having different tax rates for different people. We uh, want to avoid competing over government privilege. Yes. That's, that's what that's we want to avoid. To, yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. All right. And Michael, you had another area that you wanted to hit on with the subsidies changing the product to kind of start to wrap things up. Yeah. the You had mentioned at the end of the last segment that you know, the the subsidies that a company can get can actually change the product that they provide. And there's there's two ways this happens. First, as my colleague Matt Mitchell likes to say, with government shekels come government shackles. <laughs> so that means if you if you accept the handout, you end up having to produce in the way that government officials want you to produce. Maybe that means that you have to use more green energy than you would otherwise in your operation. Maybe that means that you have to hire more workers. Foxconn is a great example of this. Foxconn, and just in order to try to be eligible for subsidies, was hiring people and stationing them in cubicles in an otherwise empty building with elevators that barely worked and trapped people inside of them. And they didn't really have any jobs. They were just watching Netflix all day, but they were on the payroll just so that Foxconn could get subsidies. that to earn, to be eligible for the subsidies. And so like, that's an example of like unproductive entrepreneurship. And we want to avoid subsidies that, that do that. And we want to avoid government dictating to businesses how to run their operation, because generally that's going to end up with less efficient operations and therefore slower economic growth. But there's another way that we can do this too. and, And this is one out there for all sports fans. You know, uh, sports fans generally are, you know, very pr- uh, happy when their team gets subsidies to build a new stadium because this is wonderful. It's a great new place to go watch my team play. But the thing is, is the taxpayer funds that go to the stadium generally end up making it a more luxurious product than it would otherwise be. 
and taxpayers don't get a sports fans don't get a break on ticket prices just because they provided subsidies. If you have a more luxurious product, you can demand a higher price for it. So at the end of the day, sports stadium subsidies only increase the cost of future tickets for sports fans. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think a good example of that is the, the Cowboys. Uh, a ton of their revenue comes from their luxury boxes, yep. uh, which they probably wouldn't have uh, quite so many and have them be quite so luxurious without uh, some sort of you know uh, state subsidy at work. And, and in many cases, when they put in those luxury boxes, they take out seats for the lay people. Exactly, yeah. I think it's interesting when you, the Foxconn example is kind of ties into what I was saying earlier that I didn't really think about is that if, if it's $200,000 of subsidies for a $60,000 job, it makes perfect sense to hire the $60,000 person and have them watch Netflix all day and you're making $140,000 on them, right? The incentive system is just totally perverted and keeping businesses off the product that they're actually producing and not being as efficient as they could otherwise be. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's dysfunction all the way down. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, any uh, closing words here? I think this has been fantastic. Hopefully, we'll start to see this interstate compact. I, I see that as a real pathway forward. If, but I think there still has to be voter appeal with it because mm-hmm. you still have the conundrum of of the governor not wanting to do the compact if that's what gets him in office. So, I think a dual approach of of educating the the voters that the compact is a good way to maybe it could be a voter policy that a governor actually gets into office. Mm-hmm. If we can get people understanding that, that that could be really healthy for their state. The the challenger to uh, Governor Kemp in Georgia right now is actually running on an anti-Rivian plan. So uh, that's definitely a thing. And and the the important thing to realize is that interstate compact can be structured so that it's in po- current politicians' best interest to sign on to it. One of the ways that you can do it is have a 50-state trigger clause where it doesn't kick in until every state has signed on. And so at that point, for current politicians, it allows them to have their cake and eat, and it, eat it too. too. They can take a stand against subsidies while at the same time continuing to authorize subsidies, probably <laughs> through the end of their career, until the uh, the final state signs the compact. And at that point, it's it's also a very costless decision for policymakers to sign on to. And so there's different ways forward, and we're still discussing those, but there's definitely ways to make this work. Yeah. The grim trigger strategy, I guess, or something like that. Or I don't that's a little bit different strategy when you've got 50 players involved, but that's that's a cool thought too. So All right. Well, Michael, we really appreciate you joining us today. And uh, maybe there is a time in the future we can explore some other issues with you. I'd love that. Thanks for having me. All right. Great. Well, this has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. A five-star rating helps other people find us. And please pass it along to your friends and family. I think they might be interested in what we have to say as well. We have a donate button on our Gorton Institute webpage. And so if you want to continue to support us, uh, podcasts, and the other things we do with student programming. We appreciate it. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.